We're in Proverbs 3 this morning looking at these first 12 verses. And, and as, I, as I was developing kind of what we were going to look at today, the, the first idea I had, I was, I was running with it. I got into kind of deep Tuesday and I recognized what a completely anemic and terrible idea it was. And so Wednesday began to kind of reformulate and rethink of things. I'm not a creative person, okay? This is one of the reasons I love book studies. We get in 1 Peter, we're in 1 Peter for 30 weeks. Not a whole lot of creativity there for me saying, what am I going to preach next week? Because it's the next section of scripture. But every time we have an opportunity to fall outside of one of these book studies and speak about something, my heart is just really being God, what would you have these people hear? The way our lives are going, kind of the ebb and flow of our calendar, what would you have uh, these people to hear? Now today happens to be kind of Senior Recognition Sunday. And so I started thinking, you know, what would have been good for my heart to hear almost two decades ago? What would have been good for my heart to hear as I was preparing to launch out? What would be good for the people of Ridgecrest to hear as we're anticipating and looking and prayerfully considering heading out on this bold new endeavor of our own? The remodeling and repurposing of our facilities. And ultimately, I landed on this wonderful passage in Proverbs 3. There is so much good instruction for our hearts found in Proverbs 3. Now, it's by the nature of what it is, Proverbs aren't promises. They're not promises. One of the things we, we find when we read through Proverbs is we see things and say, yes, yes, I want that. I want that to be true for me. I want that to be true for my family. Many of you have, have, have likely spent time praying Proverbs 22.6, right? If you're a parent, this is probably in you and you've prayed it on your your, your pregnant spouse, you've prayed it over your kids as you saw them raise up. It says, train up a child in the way he should go. And listen to this, even when he's old, he will not depart from it. And so we prayed that, but some of us, we've raised up our kids. We have poured out our hearts before them. We've sought to keep the word before them earnestly. We've sought to, to model and to live a gospel-saturated life, showing our kids that, that our possessions do not own us, but we use them as vehicles for the expansion of God's kingdom and his glory. And so everything we've done, we've sought to live in humility before our kids, but still our kids grow up and they make terrible mistakes. Some of them, the seed of the gospel that we were, we were diligent to plant, we were diligent to, to nurture and tend the soil of their hearts, we saw it grow up and we saw weeds spring up right alongside it. We saw our kids grow up and leave our homes and never come to know the Lord. We saw others of our children grow up and make, make horrible decisions and not recover well from these decisions, but to crash their lives on the rocks of accident. And so we come across passages like Proverbs 22.6, and, and if you read the Proverbs incorrectly, you're reading them as promise, and so you read that, that your life has been a failure. If that's you this morning, might I rescue you from the false interpretation of this? Proverbs are general truisms. Generally speaking, all things being equal, these things will come to pass. They are not promises. They're written in short form so that we might be able to make them more memorable. If you pour out your life to your kids, it is not wasted. It is not in vain. And all things being equal, them having free will, by and large, they will grow up to know who God is on the basis of your modeling and your instruction to them in their lives. And so as we look at Proverbs 3, we have to understand the critical nature of the proper hermeneutic, interpretive method for studying the Proverbs. Look what he says here. Look at verses 1 and 2. It's a couplet. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. 
for the lengths of days and years of life and peace that will add to you. And so that's this kind of general truth, general truth attached to it. And so seniors, as you begin to, to think about what it's like to, to roll into this next phase of life, we recognize that the author of Proverbs has something incredibly helpful to add to you. What is he saying? Is speaking to his son, he says, Do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Some of you had godly parents. Perhaps your parents woke you up at 5.45 every morning and you got in, you gathered around their bed and dad's uh, telling you what the word says. He's applying it to your heart. Perhaps for you, every time you messed up, mom or dad is saying, well, this verse says this and and this is how you apply this and and they're being redemptive in all these things and so there's grace when you make mistakes and they're bringing you back to the gospel. You know, perhaps for some of you, your parents didn't do this. Your parents convinced you, they told you over and over again that you are the absolute center of the universe, that the sun rises and sets on you. It made you feel good, right? It just made you feel good to think, man, the sun is rising because I'm rising, and it doesn't set because I don't sleep. That's when you were two. But what we see in this is that your parents should have been engaged in a decidedly specific task and endeavor. And in fact, in Deuteronomy 6, we kind of see this. This is what the role of a parent should have been for you in your life. Deuteronomy 6, Moses is spelling out this instruction for parents, this instruction for the nation. And he says these words, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This is what your parents should have been telling you. This is the commandment you can't forget. Whether you're transitioning into college, into the career field, you yourselves are looking to have kids, or you're decided to invest yourselves in some other endeavor. The Lord your God is the, the, the highest and the most supreme, and all of your life should be lived in dedication to him. You love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them on your on <clears throat> you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The picture we get there in Deuteronomy is that everything should find itself in submission to the word into a representation of God, who he is, and who he's desiring to be in your life. When you contemplate the instruction of your parents, what you remember is the instruction of your parents as it relates to what God had said. Can I tell you that, that as you go and as you grow, you're going to find out that some of the things your parents told you are wrong, not nearly as many things as you think are currently wrong today. But maybe you find out some of the things your parents said are wrong. You begin to recognize that you are not the center of the universe, but there is one who is, and your life should be lived in submission to him and for his glory. Amen? So we recognize, man, there's profound wisdom in here. Look at the next little bit of advice the author gives to us. He says, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so that you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and the sight of man. One thing that you need to continually contemplate, continually let permeate who you are, is this idea of steadfast love and faithfulness. 
God demonstrates this steadfast love towards humanity in this Ephesians 2 kind of way that when we were so incredibly far removed from him, Ephesians 2 says, dead in our trespasses and sins. Imagine a pig wallowing in mud and liking it. This was us in our sin. That even in that place, even at that time, God so moved with love towards humanity that he sent his son Jesus to come and to take on all the effects and all of the punishment for sin. The Bible refers to it as the propitiation. God's wrath visited out upon Jesus. Jesus stood in your stead forever after demonstrating what steadfast love is. Seniors and others, as I tell you, when you begin to make these transitions, your tendency is to make them upon selfish motivation. What is most satisfying to me? What is most gratifying to me? Where can I really see myself going? What do I want to be in life? The first question you need to ask yourself is, am I focusing on the steadfast love and faithfulness of God? Or am I making ultimately decisions about the subject of satisfying self? of making me happy, of making my life more enhanced and better. It comes in, and this is a verse that many of us memorize. I believe my youth pastor wrote this in my Bible when I graduated high school. Look at verses 5 and 6. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. And what a clear and pivotal instruction. Remember when I went off to college, I had one goal. Rich. Matt, what do you want to be when you finish college? Rich. How do you want to get there? I'd like to be a dentist. But really, that was a vehicle for making lots and lots of money. I want to have nice cars, plural. Anybody can have a nice car. I wanted to have nice cars. I wanted to have nice homes, take wonderful vacations. I wanted stuff. And so all my decisions at that point found themselves in submission to satisfying self, being rich, being rich, having lots of stuff. Look what he says here. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. You do not lean on your own understanding. One of the things that, as you move on into college and, and for the rest of us, as we transition to every little different phase of life, people have a nasty habit of asking this, us this question, what do you want? What is it you'd like to do next? What do you, what do you want? And at the heart of this question is a misled anthropology, a misled understanding of, of, of man, anthropology. It sees man at the center of all things. Instead of seeing God at the center of all things, and man found its submission and subservience to God. This right here, this tells us that our heart is fickle, our heart is prone to wander, our heart is prone to lead us down the path that sounds so good to our neighbors, it sounds so good to some of our relatives, perhaps for some of you it sounds good to your parents. Your parents, some of them, they're banking that you will fund their retirement. And so when they look at it and they hear you talk about being a doctor, about being a lawyer, they're thinking, Florida, yes. I love golf. At least I would love the 20 years of golf. I'm going to play on your dime. I'll learn to love it. And so some of you, when you talk to your parents about what you want to be, they're thinking in terms of of this kind of metric of economics, especially if they play to play for your education. They're thinking, oh, man. 
Let's see, your education is 40, carry the two, carry the three, a quarter of a million dollars, and you want to be what? I want to be, I want to be married, mom. You want, to, you want to spend a quarter of a million dollars and you want to be married? And, and, and so they're thinking in terms of economics and, and, and you're like, oh, okay, okay, we're being professionally married, maybe that's not going to make me much money. I want to be married with a PhD. Oh! And so they're thinking now in terms of, of the coronary they're going to have and, and not only are you not going to be able to fund their retirement, they're never going to be able to retire and all their friends are going to be raising their grandkids and no, they're just coming apart at the seams. Oh! Man, get worked up. My kids are in single digits, and I'm still thinking about the fact they're not going to pay for my retirement. What in the world? <laughs> Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lead on your own understanding. But this amazing corrective here, if we're seeking to acknowledge God in everything we do, it can never go wrong. If you seek to acknowledge God in all you do, it says here that he will make straight your paths. Now, what this is not communicating is that no matter what you do, we'll find the blessing of God. What this is ultimately communicating is that we are submitting ourselves, our lives, our livelihood, our future vocation, all to God. And as we seek to follow this, he will direct our footsteps. So we're not picking careers based upon a promise of future earnings. We're not picking careers based upon where we would like to live. We're picking all these things, choosing all these decisions, and submitting all of them to saying, God, how would you be most glorified in my life? God, what would you have me to do? And can I tell you, some of you, that as you submit these things to God, God will move and he will say, I don't want you to be a lawyer. I want you to be a teacher. And I want you to be a teacher so that you can go and work with underprivileged children. And I want you to be a teacher so that you have your summers free. And I want you to be a teacher so that when your summers are free, you can go and live on mission for me in Africa. You can go and live on mission for me in Asia. I want you to do this so that you can go and live in inner city Houston, inner city Detroit in the summers and give your time for free. And if you have a conventional job like being a lawyer, being a banker, or being a doctor, you're not going to have that time. We need to always be submitting our hopes and our dreams to God, saying, God, what would you have me do? What dream would you have for me? What path would you have me to walk down? Look what he goes on to say here. Verse 7 and 8. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, turn away from evil. It'll be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. When I started college, I was given advice by the guy that lived across the hall. If you're going to college, this would be great advice for you. Never trust the word of a sophomore. (laughs) Never trust the word of a sophomore. They survived their freshman year. Never trust them. Trust somebody that's far removed. I didn't take that advice. And so on syllabus day, right, I show up to, to organic chemistry and it's syllabus day. I don't bring a textbook. I don't bring the lab book. I, don't, I just kind of sit at the desk. I'm twirling my pencil. I don't even think I brought anything to write on. Professor walks in, drops the book down, and says, chapter three, let's go. Automatically, I started with a C. Pretty soon, I dropped that class. <clears throat> Another bit of wisdom for you. Drop the class before the deadline. Drop the class for the deadline. Drop the class. It's it's good advice. That'll work every day of the week. But look what he says here. Be not wise in your own eyes. There's this temptation as you grow in knowledge to see yourself as wise. There's a decided difference between knowledge and wisdom. Be not wise in your own eyes. Look to others around you and ask them to weigh in. Look to godly people around you and weigh in. 
college is this colossal think tank where everybody has an opinion and very few of them are vetted or validated. They've not been vetted and validated by life experience and few of them will be vetted and validated by the eternal word of God. They're coming to you with what sounds best. And many of the people that give unsolicited advice and instruction to you will see themselves as being wise in their own eyes. And consequently, you as you grow up will see yourself and begin to believe that you are wise and and that you are all-knowing and that you see these things. Proverbs gives us an amazing corrective of this in Proverbs 26 and verse 12. 26 and verse 12 says this, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? This is what it says about him. There is more hope for a fool than for him. There's much to be gained in wisdom, but there's more to be gained in evaluated wisdom in submitting yourself to those around you. Amen? So we get into this, we recognize that Proverbs, wisdom, has so much to offer us if we'll find ourselves to be a willing student submitting ourselves to it and ultimately to God. Look down here in verses 9 and 10. It says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. And he offers this, this promise or this general truth. He says, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Generosity is a hard thing to learn. I can remember being in high school making three, four dollars an hour and, and wondering where I was going to spend all that money. Remember when I, when I got a raise later on, you know, after college, I'm making ten dollars an hour and I'm wondering... Well, at that point, I was wondering how's it going to pay all these bills, but it was a lot compared to three and four dollars an hour. Generosity is not something that begins when you make a lot of money. If you look around and, 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 and you look, and you were here a couple of weeks ago, you heard me mention a statistic as we begin to evaluate and look at kind of our church in comparison with the number of family units we have and what giving looks like and how these things are situated. One of the things we looked at, and you heard me say, is that we have about 83 family units that gave $300 or less last year. Now you bump that up to the next category, and we've got roughly 100 that gave $600 or less. I don't know who all's on that list. I'm not looking at that. I'm just looking at kind of broad categories, how this works. Young people, if I could tell you something that would be incredibly helpful for you, if you wait to be generous, you never will be. If your parents didn't raise you under this understanding of giving 10% and giving a tithe for the church, then it will always be this internal struggle for you. You're going to have a hard time being generous with finances because you're going to see it as something you deserve, something you worked hard for. You're going to have to go to college for four years. If you take a victory lap, it'll be five. If you pursue, it happens. If you pursue advanced degrees, it's another 36 hours. You get a PhD, that's just, just go ahead, you're old that point by the time you finish if ever or maybe you just work maybe you come straight out of high school and you go into the workforce you're saving and you're earning and you're you're piling this stuff away if you're waiting for some threshold to be generous that threshold will continue to grow i can't tell you the number of people i've had conversations with that that when having when given opportunities to to be at home with their family more some of them would say well you know $100,000 is a lot of money to some people. I'm just not sure I could live on that. There's always a next level of expectation that you would have. 
There's always an expectation level that if I just hit this level, then I'll begin to give more to charity. I'll begin to give more to the church. I'll begin to give more of my time. You're never going to have enough time. You're never going to have enough money. And you're always going to want more stuff. Graduated from college. Valerie and I got married. We moved to Fort Worth. I looked at our finances. And I said, we cannot afford to tithe. I didn't tell that to her. I didn't tell that to her. And so I'm paying all our bills, and I just quit tithing. I rationalized it in my mind. We had not yet joined a church. We did not yet need to give. My mindset communicated to me that we did not have enough to tithe. So there's just inner turmoil. And then when she found out, now there's external turmoil. (laughs) My ears still ring when I think about it. If you wait to be generous, you're never going to be. You're going to be like those who never give. I think a fair reading of Scripture will communicate to you, you're not trusting God with your possessions, your possessions are owning you. Scripture calls us to be stewards of those things he gives to us. It does not call us to lord over them. A quick check for you of whether or not your possessions, your money are, are, are owning you and owning your heart is where your money goes. Some of you, the reason that you're unable to give to a church, you're unable to give to a nonprofit, is because you're a slave to the lenders around you. Your credit cards are maxed out. You are just living, drowning in debt. Man, if that's you, then I agree financially. There's zero chance you're ever going to tithe unless you get your debt under control. So many college students get into so much trouble using credit cards and, and getting on crazy debt. I remember I got my first credit card in college. My next-door neighbor, <clears throat> he said, so you got a credit card? I said, yeah, man, I got a $300 limit. It's awesome. I was waiting tables, and so I could for sure pay that every month. And he said, well, you know how to get them to raise your limit, don't you? I said, I assume I pay my bill on time and, you know, never going over. He said, no, 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 no. Go way over and never pay your bill. They'll raise your limit to accommodate these things, and it'll be awesome. I didn't take his advice. (laughs) I don't take all the advice. I didn't take his advice. And uh, apparently he took his advice and then that same advice for several other people. But if you dig yourself a hole financially, it's going to be so incredibly difficult for you to be a good steward of those things God has given you because you're going to be literally a slave to the lenders around you. We would love to sit down with you if that's where you are, if that's where your family is, you're struggling to make ends meet because you have so much debt, we would love to sit down with you to find uh, CPAs and others to sit down with you from this body and help you begin to pay off that debt and get out from underneath that, that crushing weight of that debt around you. But college students, if I could tell you that when you go off, if you'll begin to be generous when you have very little, it'll be so much easier to be generous when you've got a lot, okay? Let's look at this last deal. This is so important. The author of Proverbs doesn't want to leave us without an opportunity to examine what happens if we make a mistake. He says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father in whom he delights. Can I tell you that my prayer, the prayer of the staff, and I'm certainly certain the prayer of your families is that you would never make mistakes. That you would live lives that are grace, that are enchanted, that you would live lives free from mistake. And that if you make mistakes, you would recover quickly and recover well. 
statistically speaking, looking out, recognize that any number of you will make mistakes, and some of those mistakes will be significant. There'll be an embarrassment to you, an embarrassment to your family, potentially an embarrassment to your faith. And you're going to experience consequences because of these. You're going to experience consequences. You're going to feel shame. You're going to feel guilt. But there's so much love in this passage. Look what he says here. Do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. This is the same word echoed in Hebrews 12, verses 5 and 6. For the Lord, what does it say? The Lord reproves him whom he loves. To receive the discipline of the Lord is an extension of his grace and his love for you. I think this is something I didn't fully appreciate until I had kids. You have kids, you want them to to grow up not sticking their fingers in light sockets, stabbing their little brothers, or burning your house down. Like a list of three, right? All these things we would want as parents. But there are times where you're just having fun and you're doing whatever, and, and the thought occurs to you, do I really want to stop everything right now and move to discipline and move to instruction? The most loving thing a parent can do is find a child in the midst of being wayward and to bring discipline on them perfectly tailored for that situation. It's costly for the parent, it takes time, but it's such an incredible demonstration of love. Can I tell you, if you find yourself failing, if you find yourself wandering off, if you find yourself in the midst of gross immorality, don't forsake God's love. And don't recognize the consequence, don't recognize this pain as his displeasure with you. Tell you how many friends I've had that, that went to college and they made stupid mistakes. My roommate made a point six his first semester of college. You gotta work hard at that. <laughs> that's all F's and a D. I mean that's there's precision in that. Twenty years later he's never recovered. He recognized all this failure and was so disappointed that he never began to go to those people to apologize, to seek to be reestablished, and to find his way back. There is grace, there is love, there is forgiveness. And in the midst of these, sometimes these things manifest as discipline. Recognize that when God's discipline comes upon you in your life, it is his love for you. An unloving father would let you run in sin and do whatever it is you want to do and let you ruin your life. But God's discipline is perfectly tailor-made for you in the midst of your rebellion, rebellion to prompt and to bring back faithfulness. Proverbs 3 is such a timely word for us, whether we're transitioning from high school to college or just reevaluating our lives as we prepare to make any transition. And within this, we see that the Father's wisdom for us is most beautifully represented in the person of Jesus who came to serve, to live, to die, and ultimately to be re-resurrected and to call us to walk in the faithfulness of that life he sets before us. Amen? Amen. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for an opportunity to gather together today. Father, I'm so thankful for these who are graduating high school, moving on to this next level in life, this next stage and step. I pray that you would be directing their paths, helping them to be straight, 
helping them to find their hearts fully submitted on you each and every step of the way. God, we pray for all those others who are, perhaps they have rebelled, misstepped, that you would direct them back in love, that your discipline, as it is tailor-made, would be found in their hearts and that their hearts might be returned to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.